Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a rainy autumn morning here in the capital is Martin Johnson. Martin is the Managing Director at Boulevard Care Limited, a family-run organisation in Lincolnshire catering for individuals with learning difficulties and challenging behaviours. Uh, Martin, very warm welcome to yourself and thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, good morning, Scott. Uh, thank you for um, doing me an invite. It's a pleasure welcoming you onto the um, airwaves with me. Um, normally, at this point in the uh, the programme, we tend to dive into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it is appropriate that we approach the subject matter from that angle because it has proven for leaders within all walks of life to be such a significant challenge over the course of this year. But for yourselves, of course, working in the care sector, a frontline industry, to what extent has this affected things for you? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think um, since very early on this year, from sort of March time, um, when the uh, pandemic seemed to then be suddenly coming to the fore in every country, um, like um, many other care homes, obviously it was a case of um, having to really focus inwards for a change and really look at trying to protect and ensure the client's safety, um, whereas normally we'd be encouraging people far more to be much more community involved. Um, and so the whole process has sort of very much um, changed in the last sort of six or seven months. And uh, on the daily workings and on the direction that Boulevard Care has been working with the client group. And just thinking about the experience that you've had over the uh, the last few months managing all of these issues, is there anything in sort of your leadership role you feel that you've learned about yourself or the people that you're working with? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think the first thing, that, that certainly from a leadership point of view, is what a fantastic team of people that we've actually got mm. um, working across all our locations. I think the commitment and the sacrifice that people have given, um, it's been inspiring to everybody, um, including myself. Um, and the, the, the care for the individuals has um, been paramount in, in everybody's life. People have made sacrifices um to ensure the client's safety, and that's been um, paramount for everybody. Mm. Um, and it's been, you know, it's been a very important um, part of keeping us um, and the organisation COVID safe. It has been, and you've heard so many stories uh, during uh, this time about things that have been going on in the care sector, such as care staff actually living in the care homes effectively full time and not going back home to see their families um, just to cut down that risk of transmission either one way or the other. Now, um, with these sacrifices in play and, of course, the resulting anxiety that's going to come about as a result of sort of safety concerns, what it means also for people's sort of career prospects as well, job security. Um, how has it been sort of managing things from a mental health and well-being perspective? Because that issue certainly has been amplified by the last few months as well, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's, um, 
it's a major part of everybody's life during this time. Mm. I think there's a lot of fear out there for everybody, whether that's um, members of staff or just members of the public. Um, there's, there's the initial fear that people have had to actually adjust and adapt with um, because it's the unknown and, you know, it's, um, it frightens everybody. It's been, it's been very difficult that the staff have remained stable and settled because there is the, the key person dealing with our individuals that will become very anxious and concerned themselves <laughs> mm. um, from the people that are looking after them. And I think um, for anybody that's um, living in isolation on their own, living in small environmental spaces, I think I think mental health mental health generally um, is something that initially it wasn't really thought about, but as mm. the time has gone by and the lockdowns have remained, and uh, people's not freedoms particularly, but their their ability to choose a wider range of things that they would like to do. Um, yeah, I think that affects everybody's mental state, whether it be positive or negative. Mm. And just thinking as well of some of the um, sort of procedures and restrictions that have come into the care industry in particular during this um, last few months, um, including, of course, visitor levels um, being either restricted or um, essentially forbidden completely for some time, and, of course, increased use of PPE and other procedures. Do you think that some of these could actually be here to stay for the very long term? Because even when we do ultimately have a vaccine, of course, fingers crossed, that does actually happen. Um, It's not necessarily going to work as a magic bullet to make all of the fear and all of the anxiety go away, is it? So it may well actually be beneficial in the eyes of many to sort of keep some of these procedures in place for quite a while if not for good yeah i mean i think um i don't think there's going to be a quick fix um and i think that um certainly within the elderly population in in the care environment i think i think the shielding will need to take place for a lot longer period than than general um we're very fortunate to have a very uh, sort of much younger client group although are still very vulnerable and at risk um, it, it, it's, a, it's quite a different environment. Um, but I think the, the use of the PPE, I don't think that will go away soon at all. Mm. I think the, the talk of vaccines, it's, um, the talk of vaccines is a, is a, is a very difficult one um, because I think the, the amount, the whole population has to be vaccinated. Um, and it's, um, I don't know how far away that is. And I think we still have to look at another, probably at least the six months till April, and then another year after that before the new normal, as it will be, I think, will be sort of settled in. Um, but yeah, the uh, the risk within the, the care homes, yeah, we've seen sort of um, much more limited visiting. We've been very fortunate to have some very supportive families um, that also um, appreciate that um, they need to be protecting the clients and themselves. Um, and, and so overall, I think it's um, it's going to be a slow adjustment, um, and whether it will ever go back to how things were, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I really don't know where that's going to go yet. Hopefully, it will, mm. um, because I think um, I think everybody can cling with some security with with, with normality, don't they? Um, it's the restrictions I think that um, people find very difficult within our client uh, sector. The PPE itself causes a problem where, where our, our individual clients, they need to see facial recognition and they need to see how people are responding in a, in a very much a non-verbal way. 
um, fortunately, we've been able to um, access more recently um, transparent face masks, which have helped in dealing with the behaviours mm. that we're seeing on a daily basis. Because when you can only see the eyes of somebody, that's not always a good indicator of their mood. Um, and, and so that's been an area that, you know, there are all little small areas where we're having to adjust and adapt all the time. With, within our client group, um, the three-foot distancing to be safe working isn't always easy because they, are, they aren't somebody that would then just sit and have care provided to them. Mm. It's, it's very much their life. They want to be with you, part of what you're doing. And so for staff, it's been difficult having to suddenly um, keep PPE on for eight to ten hours a day. Um, and it just feels a very strange environment when it isn't really a nursing environment. It's very much um, within our group of individuals. It's their home. And it's trying to retain a home environment and not become very much a clinical setting, but trying to also keep that safe. So there are, there are sort of difficulties all through it, but mm. as I say, the staff of um, the staff are adapting as well as everybody else is having to um, to try and keep a, a lot of sort of safe feeling within the homes and the locations that we have. Um, so, um, and again, that, that will hopefully um, minimise any sort of mental health issues going on as well. I think you raise a hugely important point there about having to adapt because it's a hugely important facet of leadership being able to not just of course be proactive and plan for the future but also be able to be sort of nimble footed be able to react to changing guidelines and changing circumstances and the ability of so many industries to do just that has been significantly tested during uh, this uh, year and I think to its credit um, it has held up very very well on the uh, on the whole and you also raise a valid issue as well about um, the people that you work with specifically because it isn't just as simple as masking up and then going and doing your job under new safety procedures because when you do deal with people who do have learning difficulties and challenging behaviours who are used to that sort of face-to-face contact like it is sometimes unsettling for them when somebody enters a room and they're sort of completely doused in full PPE and like you can't see their face and read their facial expressions. Yeah. And I think the other problem that came that because um, we were just within the, you know, from about June, um, it it seemed that the um, pandemic was sort of beginning to falter away. um, And that the country was generally on top of controlling the R rate. Um, And so then that's been then, encouraged onto the clients that so yes we can start getting back to normal yes things are looking better and then for four months then all of a sudden the changes instantly came with the, the fear of the second wave and suddenly all the staff are walking around fully PPE'd up and then I think it was a bit of a shock for the clients initially that you know they're being sort of told one thing and then suddenly it's instantly it's changed um, and I think that that's now sort of beginning people have settled again now, realising that the second wave is perhaps far more serious than they originally thought. And people generally, I think, are hopefully still taking it seriously because it's, um, it's, it's a very fearful pandemic. It is, and um, it is something that we're going to have to continue to grapple with over the course of the next few months at least um, because we have a tricky winter um, coming up that we're going to have to navigate before we can even think about the long-term future. But if we could look beyond 
that sort of winter period and maybe pretend we have a crystal ball for a moment, Martin, and see one year ahead from now. Um, there is the variable of whether or not we'll have a vaccine, of course, by that point. But in an ideal world, um, where is it that you would like Boulevard Care to be by this time next year? And what is it that you are really hoping to have achieved by then? Well, I'm certainly hoping that um, we'll have um, removed all the tears generally from all of the walks of life. Mm. Um, and that there will be some um, resumption of normal activity, just jumping on buses and going to shops and being part of the community. We've, we've spent many years trying to um, encourage our clients to be involved in the community and to be part of the community. Um, the pandemic has very much put a put a, a block to that because all of those facilities and services that we would use and encourage people to use are very limited at this point. Um, so I think... Um, Come next April, we'll have sort of have an idea of whether that's um, hopefully then easing. Um, and we'll be looking to initially get back to um, using the facilities and the services and encouraging people to be far more independent um, and certainly less reliant as they are at the moment on the services that are being provided to them and for them, um, rather than then actually being able to then get back out and finding things and learning and experiencing for themselves. Um, I think um, overall, mm. the safety will continue to be um, something ongoing, even when this pandemic has gone. I believe there's probably already a vaccine now. Um, having seen um, Her Majesty out last week on a public engagement, I think she's um, the, the, the main leader of this country that everybody would want to protect and keep very safe. So I felt very assured seeing her out uh, on a public engagement for the first time in seven months. So I'm hoping that um, a vaccine is very close. Um, but I think Boulevard Care will hopefully continue to grow. Um, we're, we're still um, looking to um, improve as an organisation and make sure that we're one of the leading organisations in the development of um, individuals with learning disabilities and their capabilities and all of the um, opportunities that should be afforded. Um, and so that will be our main focus at the end of that, is getting that back so that people can feel confident um, and assured in getting back into the community. Because as you can see with a lot of people now, the average individual is finding it difficult to, to release that fear to then go back into the community at all. Yes, we do hopefully need to see an end to that sort of fear and that anxiety and it is a shame because we do seem to be staring down the uh, the barrel of um, sort of a mental health crisis and it will take some time certainly to recover but there is of course always hope that we won't necessarily return to exactly the way that things were because there are huge lessons that we do need to learn from this but um, I think some sort of social normality is certainly something we can hope to uh, get back to one day. And I think just given how many variables there still are in all of this and just how unclear it still is as to how it will ultimately play out, Martin, I think given what we've discussed today, that it would be really beneficial to actually catch up at some point in this next few months and have you back on the programme once we have a better idea of what the landscape is starting to look like and we can discuss exactly how far we've come in the time between our discussions. Yeah, I'll very much look forward to that. <laughs> um, absolutely, myself as well. And um, I would certainly hope um, that behind the scenes at Boulevard Care, there's also some positive news to share by that point too. And hopefully we're not bogged down into quite too difficult a uh, winter. Let's keep our fingers crossed that 
we're not going to be stuck in the rut for too much longer. And I have to say, until we do get an opportunity to speak again, most importantly, take care and stay safe with all still going on. And that goes for everybody associated with Boulevard Care too. Um, yeah, no, I'd like to say thank you very much, Scott. Indeed, it's been an absolute pleasure. It has for me as well, Martin. And I would also like to extend that well wish to all of the listeners that are tuning into today's podcast as well. Please do continue to be sensible and stay well and be considerate of others because it does make such a key difference in saving lives during this time. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Martin Johnson, Managing Director at Boulevard Care in Lincolnshire, onto the programme today. Next up on the show, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett, who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth. He held numerous senior positions in the Cabinet of Tony Blair during the latter's premiership and served as the MP for the Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. His political exploits saw him elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015. And I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew welcomed the opportunity to catch up with him. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. 
What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. 
But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. 
And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, 
what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Um, These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack, uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us 
to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? 
Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor uh, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that 
as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.